0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California.
1: Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk over the course of conversation with a colleague of mine he was talking about a series of photographs a collage really floating about on Facebook. One side to the left depicts photographs of the likes of Albert Einstein, Carl Sandberg, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Arturo Toscanini, a good Irish name for you and on the left on the left a photograph of Snooky from Jersey Shore. By the way if you don't know who that is, congratulate yourself the caption below this collage of photograph reads if you know the person on the right but none on the left you might be what's wrong with america and that i think is an ideal introduction to my next guest on the program tonight He is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Intellectual Morons and A Conservative History of the American Left. His latest book is entitled Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. We're joined tonight by Daniel Flynn. Uh, Daniel, as we mentioned, in addition to being a best-selling author, is also a columnist for humanevents.com and a blogger at Flynfiles.com. And Daniel, thanks so much for being with us on the program tonight. Thank you for having me. I thought uh, that the story of that collage of photographs, I don't know what, but maybe you have seen them, in in many ways kind of defines exactly what has happened in this slow uh, but steady slide into the abyss in America today, uh, where even as we've tried to search for some sort of a connection between uh, the intellectuals and and the so-called inspiration for the Occupy Wall Street movement, there is scant little evidence of same.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen those pictures, but you you did what a good radio host will do, which is to create a visual with, with your words. <laughs> so I, I feel like I've seen those pictures, and I, I've certainly seen Snooky and, and those other characters as well, but that's, that's kind of where we're at um, as, as a culture, where you know it, it used to be the case um, around the mid-century mark that the United States of America... You know, the people of the United States of America were the best, you know, the most well educated people in the history of the world. You had University of the Air style radio programs, the Book of the Month Club, great books, discussion groups, meeting in YMCAs and union halls around the country. Um, You don't see that very much today. And I think part of the reason is that the everyman is. You know, rather than, than reaching for something higher, they're kind of dragging their arms ever lower. You know, <laughs> for Snooky and the situation and all that kind of thing. Um, but on the other side of the coin, uh, you don't have intellectuals as eager to engage the everyman. Um, and we we once had intellectuals, you know, the blue car intellectuals that I write about, who spoke not just to other eggheads, but were, were very um, enthusiastic about opening up a conversation to all comers. And I think. The, the the issue we have today, sure, part of it's uh, you know Joe Sixpack not being being um, as, as intellectually curious as he once was, but the other part of it is that you have um, uh, you know academics who are, who are operating in, in an intellectual ghetto.
1: And let's face it: there needs to be some source of stimulation uh, to encourage that intellectual curiosity. And I think, as you aptly point out, uh, throughout your new book, blue-collar intellectuals. I mean, part of this we can lay uh, squarely at the feet of you know reality shows, which are anything but. Uh, you know, video games is entertainment. Uh, Facebook is our singular means by which we we stay socially connected. I imagine what a shock it would be for our great-great-grandparents who communicated either in person, uh, faccia a faccia, as we would say in Italian, or by the old-fashioned method of, of handwriting letters, and now all of a sudden it's been reduced down to anything that you can get in 140 characters uh, on on Twitter, and this all of a sudden has now been sub, the, the substitute uh, for social interaction. I mean, I, I, th- I think we can point at a number of levels of the steady decline, if not outright decay, uh, not only our, our social interaction skills, but our our intellectual skills as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I, I was out in your neck of the woods researching this book, and something that you said really brought to mind um, some of my research in the archives, looking at people like Eric Hoffer at the Hoover Institution or Mil- Milton Freeman, and Hoffer having some papers also at the San Francisco Public Library. And when you when you research archives of people who lived, you know, hundred years ago, you you grasp how um, even just normal people, how how good they were at writing. And they wrote letters. They wrote long letters to people. And I, I wonder what's going to happen 50 or 100 years from now uh, when people look at our writing. I don't know if they're going to be saving Twitter tweets or gonna be saving text messages, but I shudder to think at, at uh, how they will um, look at us Uh, from the way we write, because we're not not really impressing people with that. Well,
1: and you point out in the book, and I I saw this, and and there was a resounding knee-slapping amen, brother, when I I read this line inside of the book, uh, this notion that, you know, for the longest time we used to decry... The kind of trash that showed up at the grocery store uh, checkout line, you know, which was everything from uh, you know the world world's weird news to uh, the National Enquirer, et cetera, et cetera. Now all of a sudden today, it is hard to uh, differentiate between uh, what you see at the grocery checkout stand and what you see at the newsstand these days, and 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 even you know even with the internet and the ability of it to to bring to us such a vast knowledge of the the collected uh, you know awareness and understanding of the world uh, right there at the fingertips of the keyboard, Uh, it seems as if even so-called legitimate news sites uh, can't deal somehow with the abstraction to the outright uh, obsession of things like, you know, focusing on no talent, no buddies like a Kim Kardashian. All of this, sure. I think, just you know, indicative, as you pointed out, you know, when the newsstand is no different than the checkout line at the grocery store, um, you know, it, it might be subtle, but I think it's a very profound subtlety, uh, subtlety as to what it says about who we have become as a nation.
2: Yeah, I mean, the book is really about a time when smart looked for you, and I think what you have today is, you know, you you can still look, for, you can still find smart if you look hard enough. But it's smart's it's not really looking for you. In other words, there's sort of an invasive stupidity. There's, you know, I, I, I travel a lot in, in writing books, and I get into the back of a cab, and all of a sudden, I don't know when this started, but there's a TV that I can't turn off in the back of a cab. You sit in an airport waiting room. There's no escape from uh, you know, the, the CNN International blaring in the, in the background. You can't find a quiet corner to read, even when you get on the subway. It used to be, if you, you'd notice, you know, when you ride the subway, people would be reading. They'd be reading newspapers and magazines and books. And now, I mean, there's still some people who are reading, but most of the time people are texting, they're playing a video game, they're doing something with an electronic gadget. And I can't help but think from observing all this, how we spend, you know, how we spend our leisure time, it's largely become a waste of time. And, you know, far be it for me to lecture to someone, hey, you have to use your time and in the way that i want to use your time I'm, that's not what i'm trying to do but I, I can't help but thinking that the way we use our leisure time is really affecting us in a negative way as, as a country
1: you're right, and as you point out, you know, for for, for the working man, the blue collar guy that worked in industry uh, back in the 1930s and 40s, say, or who had migrated to states like California during the Dust Bowl uh, period in Oklahoma, um, you know, by by no stretch of the imagination, where these ed- educated people are necessarily highbrow or intellectuals, and yet, as you say, there was enough in popper popular culture and enough influence by the so called intellectuals that went looking for the common man, or or the blue-collar guy, to help try and elevate him. I mean, my goodness, it's not that many years ago that things like, you know, Campbell's Playhouse would present uh, Shakespearean plays in their entirety uh, over the course of several evenings, or the Firestide Theater with with great orchestras and great opera, and this would be prime-time television, 8 o'clock at night on a Wednesday evening, and the entire Family sat down and watched this, and learned, and they got exposed to some culture, to some culture, and, and they had a little bit of you know the, the intellectual exercise going on. All of that has
2: disappeared. Sure, and you know I think about the, the first um, blue collar intellectual that I write about, a guy named Will Durant, um, and I, I, you know one of the reasons why. I think these blue-collar intellectuals had, and think, you know, felt an obligation to, to engage the everyman, is because they came from um, you know, the, the mass of, of, uh, of Americans that were not at the top, but were you know, somewhere in the scrum there. And Will Durant, I mean, this is an uh, amazing Only in America story, his father was illiterate. I mean, Will Durant wrote the best-selling philosophy book in the 20th century, The Story of Philosophy. Uh, outsold Charles Lindbergh's autobiography after he he flew over the Atlantic. I mean, that's how much people were eager to read his book. Um, Will Durant, along with Ariel Durant, his wife, wrote some of you know books that were parentally on the bestseller list. The his- you know, basic- a history of the world, which he called the story of civilization, eleven volume set uh, over the course of forty five years from the nineteen twenties all the way up through the nineteen seventies. His dad couldn't speak a lick of English. He had ten kids and he worked in a factory. And when we talk about the American dream, we're so transfixed on the monetary angle. And certainly there are these rags-to-riches, horatio-alger stories. But the striver culture that I'm talking about in blue-collar intellectuals also had to do with uh, an educational betterment. And I think the story of a guy like Will Durant uh, exemplifies that. And I think the fact that we don't see that as much anymore. Well,
1: and we've I mean, we've, pointed, we've, we've dumbed down democracy in, in, in every sense of the word. And unfortunately, uh, education, whether we're talking about uh, Main Street, K through 12, uh, on up to even the higher levels of education, has seen this huge paradigm shift from teaching people how to think, presenting the facts, and then allowing them to draw their own conclusions to the easy way out, simply what to think, where we can regurgitate a couple of details here and there that it tends to sort of just make up a a particular political opinion uh, or political thrust and end of story. And and this, I think, is demonstrating, as uh, Daniel Flynn points out in his book, the danger of what's happening uh, when we're no longer enlightened, when we're no longer capable of thinking for ourselves. And, you know, we've had some examples in not too far distant history uh, of what happens when uh, mankind stops thinking for itself and relies on someone else or, or some other body to think for it and the dangers that all of that brings about. We're talking today about his new book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America. Uh, those days are not that far ago, and I think things can be done to, to revive those days and, and to bring it back. Uh, but it's going to take an awful lot of work, on all of our behalves. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. Um, and as we do so, the phone lines are open for thoughts and comments. Toll free at 888-367-5329-888, F-O-R-K-F-A-X. In particular, are there some intellectual types out there that would agree? My goodness, what's happened? That we, we've dumbed down society and we've extracted out of popular culture Anything that gives a sense of of refinement to it, uh, of culture or class to it, where pop culture today, if you spend any time on the Internet or watching MTV or anything that masquerades as as entertainment on many cable television stations today, uh, it's become an absolute wasteland. It was not always like this. So if we keep that in mind, then the question is, what do we do to revive it so we can get America back on track? Big equation here at a lot of levels, to
0: be sure. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We're talking with author Daniel Flynn, a look at blue-collar intellectuals when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. And we're talking about uh, what has become this slow slide down into the abyss. And as you point out in the book, Daniel, as much as we'd like to um, say, gee, what's wrong with America? Where did we go wrong? There's a degree to which the intellectuals have ultimately failed the culture. They no longer engage the culture the way we once did. Um, You mentioned my friend Milton Friedman, who had been a guest on this program many, many times uh, before his passing, and how much he liked to engage the common man. At what point do you think, where where do we see the distinction when that ceased to be the case?
2: I, I think with a guy like Friedman, he has a very interesting career because the first half of it is essentially engaging other intellectuals. And then at a certain point, he, he goes as far as he's going to go within academia, and he decides to write Capitalism and Freedom, which is for a, a lay audience and not for an academic audience. He decides to write this Newsweek column, which he writes for 18 years uh, every three weeks, the Free to Choose documentary. He was very skeptical of that because he thought anyone who could be convinced by a uh, half-an-hour broadcast on television would just be reconverted to the opposite position the next time uh, another half-hour program came about, you know, advocating the opposite position. So he he was skeptical of some of these things, but he thought that it was his obligation as an economist to engage the the educated um, layperson, I think. uh, And and Friedman was obviously doing this into the the 1990s and, and really up until his death just a few years ago. There are still people that you see doing this. I mean, that one one guy who you know I don't necessarily agree with with what he does, but I think Ken Burns is someone who you might call a blue collar intellectual. I mean, he's someone who people think he's an historian. He's not. He's some guy with a history degree, just like me. You know, he's a history degree from from a college, and he decided to make documentaries. And boy, that's a tough thing to make history come alive, to, to to make the dead walk again, essentially. And that's that's what he does. With some of his documentaries, and I, I really admire that. Um, I, I may not admire some of his views, but I admire people who at least make the effort to um, to reach the common man. And I don't think that we see that too much um, with academia, with people who are sort of off in their insular world, talking amongst themselves. I think they would be better served if they talked. To um, you know, if they got out of their intellectual ghettos and talked to the everyman, and I think the everyman would be better served as well. They would, be, you know, it would be a win-win for everyone.
1: So a big part of this is the, is the kind of the isolation into the ivory tower, so to speak. But then to something else that I made reference uh, to Daniel before the break, and that is what I've identified as a major shift, where at one time the, the principal component um, in education was to teach students, whether we're talking about K through twelve or at the higher degree levels. How to Think Yes, certainly there were attempts at influencing. There was no doubt about that. I I think that we can see, you know, uh, an agenda of one sort or another woven through lots of periods of of history, certainly in in 20th and 21st century history, to be sure. But all of a sudden, we we saw this major shift in education, particularly into the late 50s and early 1960s, where it was no longer about teaching the students what to think, giving them the tools so they could draw their own conclusions, but rather we kind of skipped over that process and now we just gave them what to think we went from how to think to what to think
2: yeah well, one of the um, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about is Mortimer Adler and he was really the evangelist behind the great books movement and one of the reasons why um, Adler was so successful with with the great books and selling them is because there was a void that the the you know Harvard and, and some of the other leading institutions really stopped teaching, um, those cultural common denominators, those great books of the Western world.
1: So this was yeah. like when they, they published, uh, in fact, I've got a whole set at home, like the Harvard Classics?
2: Strangely enough, Charles Eliot, who was the guy behind the Harvard Classics, one of the reasons that was successful as well is because Eliot had basically created that void by getting rid of the Classics and the curriculum at Harvard. So there's an irony there. Huh. And with, with, with a guy like uh, Adler, whose background is really amazing in the sense that He's probably the only Ivy League Ph.D. I know who had not gotten a high school diploma nor a college diploma before getting his Ph.D. But the amazing thing for me is not really his academic accomplishments, but his accomplishments as a salesman in the sense that you can can go door-to-door and sell someone a vacuum cleaner. You can go door-to-door and and sell someone flatware. But the idea of going door-to-door and selling... Everyday Americans, a million sets of the fifty-four volume Great Books of the Western uh, Great Books of the Western World. That to me is absolutely amazing. And Mortimer Adler helped do that at mid-century in America. And his big point here's his big point to get to your question. His big point was, you know, if you just have a monarchy, if you just have one king, um, you know, there's that phrase, "the education fit for a king," and you all you have to be concerned about is one guy's education, and your government's fine. But well, what happens when your king is essentially 311 million people? <laughs> you have to, you know, that that flaw, that idea, the education fit for a king. You've got to apply that to 311 million people. And if you don't concern yourself with everyone's education, you're going to have uh, a citizenry that's not only not fit to govern the country, but they're really not fit to govern their own souls. And that's the problem, as Adler saw it, and that's why he was such an enthusiast. Of, of Aristotle and Plato and Shakespeare and all of those great books that used to be the cultural common denominators and now often are, are left out of the curriculum entirely.
1: Well, and let's face it, we, we can just simply sit down and look at the headline news today and we see the results of this. You know What happens? Well, you end up with a, a, a monetary, a moral, a social, and a spiritual deficit at every level. Uh, you know, in, in economic terms, that's what leads to a $16.4 trillion deficit that nobody can quite explain. Uh, in, in moral terms or spiritual terms, this is what leads to, to people acting out in unbelievable ways, kind of the personification of, of man's ultimate you know cruelty to man, and, and, and no sense of guidelines or respect for others, for life, for any of it. So I, I think we're, also, we're seeing I the product add, of it. Yeah,
2: and, and can I add, in cultural terms... Um, you know, we just um, we just went through 2011, and this is the first year in the history of Hollywood. Just, just to throw something out there that I think every listener can relate to. The first time in the history of Hollywood that the top ten best-selling movies at the box office in a year were all either remakes, sequels, or based on old comic book characters mm. from 50 or 60 years ago. In other words, there's a complete dearth of originality in the entertainment that we have. In the sense that that we you know we're watching the Fast and the Furious Part Five and you know the Hangover Part Two and that's what people are buying, um, and it to me it just speaks to uh, the fact that as a culture we're living off the fumes of an America from 50, 60 years ago, and you could probably say the same thing economically and, 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 and translate that into other areas beyond the culture as well.
1: I, I think that, you know, as much as uh, we probably don't want to use uh, what's selling at the box office as a um, measuring stick, as a yardstick, of what's going on in, in popular culture and society today, I think it's oftentimes a very accurate one, and you're right. I mean, there seems to be this this major creative Deficit going on, and and where what things that too seem to strike a chord are rehashing of films that sometimes have their genesis going back 20, 30, 40 years or more. We're going to take a brief time out when we come back. I want to talk, too, about what seems to be the disappearance of of the warning system, the early warning system that America had in place. Now, to be sure, thank goodness, there are people like Daniel Flynn and others that are trying to to fill the gap. But whatever happened to the eldest Huxleys of the world and the Ray Bradburys and the the Orwells of the world who wrote books warning of what happens to a society when you forfeit your intellectual rights, your moral rights, your spiritual rights, your right of self-governance. We'll get back to more of our conversation, a look at Blue Collar Intellectuals, when the enlightened and the everyman elevated America. Back to our conversation with best-selling author Daniel Flynn as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation,
1: best-selling author Daniel Flynn, the book Blue Collar Intellectuals. By the way, you can get a copy of the book at uh, bookstores and, of course, information, too, on his daily blog at FlynnFiles.com. Daniel, what of the notion that we've also attended to lost kind of the early warning system? You know, I, I grew up on the, the, the writings of the likes of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I mean, everybody remembers him for his work on Star Trek, and yet the, the, the prolific writing that he did, the warning uh, that's contained in Fahrenheit 451, George Orwell's 1984, I mean, so many aspects of any of these three books and others like them that, that have served as kind of the early warning sign that it seems as if a lot of that has kind of disappeared today. We, we, we live all today in the moment and we don't think much about tomorrow, do we?
2: There, there's an interesting tidbit in my book uh, relating to both 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. There was a, a, uh, a prep school in my home state of Massachusetts. They charged $40,000 a year for students to attend. And a couple of years ago, they decided to get rid of all of their books in their library. And the, the headmaster said, people are acting like this is, you know, 1984. It's not. And I thought, you know, it, it's not just 1984. It's Fahrenheit 451. And instead of spending the money on books, they decided to spend um, uh, fifty thousand or more than fifty thousand dollars, revamping the library, adding three flat screen televisions to what once was a library and a cappuccino machine. <laughs> so that's the brave new world that's to sort of complete your trifecta there that, that we're entering into. I think of a guy like Bradbury, and uh, you know, when he was a kid, he he had a lot going against him when he was growing up in L.A. He was he was uh, extremely poor, so poor that. He had to sleep in the same bed with his brother up until the time he was an adult. It was a pull out couch in their living room. And uh, he, the other thing he had going against him was he was like a nerd, nerd. He used to corner Marlena Dietrich and Clark Gable and, and Judy Garland for autographs on his roller skates around uh, Hollywood. He was really a terror. The one thing he had going for him is that he was super smart, Ray Bradbury. And so when it came time to go to college, he, he couldn't go he, in the depression. You know, he didn't. Have, they didn't have any money. And so, what he did instead was he went to the public library for three days a week, and he read and he read and he read. And he did this for four years, three days a week. In in lieu of going to college, and I, I think that a guy like Bradbury, he had it right. In other words, uh, today, these days, people go to college, and all they care about is that piece of paper at the end of four years. They, they care less about the, the the education that comes in between. At Bradbury all he cared about was the education he could have cared less about that piece of paper and I think his life gives us a little bit of a lesson to see how our priorities are a little bit screwed up today where people go to college for the credentialism for for job training but they don't go for the learning well and they, I mean, they go
1: and they go and they go in order to get the paper to get the degree to get earn a higher salary so they can keep up with the joneses and yet there's very little and there are certainly always exceptions to this rule, but there there is not as much emphasis by any means as there used to be about getting your degree and then going out and doing something to change the world.
2: That's right. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not I don't want to make this into a, a big tirade against higher education. But there are, uh, you know, the, the blue-collar intellectuals that I write about, I mean, there's a guy like uh, Milton Friedman, who obviously had a huge benefit from being at the University of Chicago, their economics department. But there's someone like Eric Hoffer, who in San Francisco was, by day, loading, uh, you know, uh, cargo off the docks of ships uh, in, in San Francisco He, he was Bay, a longshoreman, yeah. wasn't he? Was, was wasn't
1: he a longshoreman?
2: He was a longshoreman, and the the point here is that he never went to school for a day in his life, and yet, you know, by day he's doing this longshoreman work, and by night, in his off hours, he's writing what became the True Believer, which really became one of the best books in the 20th century to understand in the 20th century, and um, you know, because of the fact that there was this American general in Station Branch who read his book in 1951, and then came back to the United States and became president was elected president the next year, we're talking about Dwight Eisenhower, who loved Hoffer's book, and because everyone wants to read what the president's reading, Hoffer became a big celebrity, and all of a sudden, the intellectual that all of America wants to consult is a guy who's never been to school a day in his life.
1: Why do you think, then, we've seen this shift at the intellectual level, where the desire to foster an educated and cultured society just seems to have fallen by the wayside?
2: Boy, when when you hear intellectuals talk they speak in a jargon that I don't even think they understand. Uh, they write books that nobody reads. They speak at conferences that nobody attends. It's, it's almost as if they're trying to convey their apartness from the rest of the society. They're not really trying to convey any substantive idea, per se, but they're trying to convey how they're in this educated clique, how they're, you know, they're kind of above everyone else. And to me, I mean, that may be cathartic. It may make them feel good, but I don't know what it, what it does. You know, it certainly doesn't do anything for society, and you know that's part of the reason I wrote this book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, because here are intellectuals who engaged the public and who spoke to the public, and you know who may have had their own intellectual work with you know involving strictly other intellectuals, but who at least made an effort to uplift um, the masses from which they sprang. And I think nowadays, because a lot of the people who are in academia um, certainly don't come from that, uh, the, the kind of uh, place that Ray Bradbury or an Eric Hoffer came from, they have absolutely no interest of, uh, of, of uh, taking that on.
1: So, and, and rather than having kind of come up through the system, so to speak, uh, they, yeah. they began as a member of the elite, that's all that they've known, and so they, they kind of hover in that rarefied air with no interest whatsoever of their feet ever touching ground.
2: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And, I, you know, look, I'm married to an academic, so I don't want to bash them too much or I'll get kicked out of my house. You'll
1: be sleeping with a dog tonight, otherwise. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you know, there was something great going on in America for much of the last century um, where you had these guys like Will, Will and Ariel Durant and Ray Bradbury and and, and Milton Friedman and and, uh, and and, you know, all the people that I write about we're making an effort to engage the everyman, and of course that's kind of what talk radio does, but you don't see that as much uh, from, from academics or scholars or intellectuals anymore, and that's kind of why I wrote the book. It's hoping to jumpstart that again.
1: How do we do that then? A closing thought from me if we can, Daniel, in a minute or so that we have left. How do we get it jumpstarted once again?
2: Well, I think in everyone in their own life, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the type of book that, that people are going to read and say, oh, well, let's pass this piece of legislation or, aha, you know, this is what we do to make everything right. Um, it's not one of those books, but what it is, is, I think anyone who reads it can make those changes in their own life. They can shut off the television for a day or shut off the Internet for a day and pick up a book. You mentioned jokingly in, the, in coming into the segment, you know, book—you know bookstores exist. I mean, I used to say you could buy it at Barnes & Noble and Borders, but there's no more Borders. And it doesn't seem to me too many used bookstores anymore. And I think if just people um, look at the common denominator, how um, people have lifted themselves up intellectually over the course of the last 400 years or so, the, the common denominator there is the book. And I think people really got to get back into... Reading and not so much being into in front of screens, whether it's your cell phone or your computer or your television. Well, and, and
1: moreover, I think it's important to underscore the fact, Daniel, that this is not just for the matter of, of you know lifting the common denominator and 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 uh, you know sparing the culture from further demise and and returning once again um, uh, a sense of of poise and culture and class to a pop culture. Uh, at certain levels, this also gets to the heart of the of the very protection of otherwise the ultimate demise, I think, of our society and our nation. Because if we don't have in stock and trade at the very least, or at least our, our, our intellectual capabilities, uh, there's not much that we have left.
2: And that's, I think, why Adler was doing the great books of the Western world, because society was being torn asunder, because we no longer had these cultural common denominators. And he said, "Look, these are the great books that have united us as a culture. Let's get back into them, even if." And it, it, you know, when he was on the cover of Time Magazine, the sub headline said, "Should professors commit suicide?" And that was uh, in jest, of course. But there was a grain of truth to it in the sense that he was offering education without the middleman, knocking the middleman out, and basically saying education is a lifetime responsibility. It's not something you do exclusively in schools. It's something to do over the course of your life. And I think if people look at it from that perspective. Um, they may be a little bit more healthy.
1: Uh, one final question i got to squeeze in here. You talk in the book about apostate historians. Uh, elaborate on that for a moment, would you, Daniel?
2: Yeah, sure. Will and Ariel Durant. I mean, Will Durant, to me, he was the apostate historian. Everything he did, when he, when he, got, when he was in the seminary, and then he decided one day he was an atheist, he got not only got kicked out of the seminary, or not only to leave the seminary, but he got excommunicated from the Catholic Church. When he, when he became an anarchist, Um, he, he was an anarchist teacher. He fell in love with one of his students who was 15 years old and they got, he was 27. He got, he got married at the, at the city hall. She went to the marriage ceremony with her roller skates. He was always doing things against the grain. When he was an anarchist, though, later a socialist went to the Soviet union, everyone expected him to come back with all these tales of heaven on earth. But instead he said, this place is a gigantic prison. (laughs) And so everything that he did in life, he always was, was, um, doing the opposite of what was expected of him. And, of course, his marriage ends up by winning jointly a Pulitzer Prize with his wife. They're married for 68 years. You wouldn't expect that out of someone, a teacher, who marries a student.
1: Amazing. Daniel, we sure appreciate the time and the insights. Great book, Blue Collar Intellectuals, When the Enlightened and the Everyman Elevated America, available on the web through Amazon.com, bookstores, if you can find them, and, again, Daniel's blog at FlynnFiles.com.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You can be uh, assured that at some point when Congress gets away from their other financial distractions... They will return once again to the topic of gun control, They did as they did so following the Sandy Took events. Joining me now with some insights, we're joined by Bill Frady. Bill is host of the nationally syndicated program called Lock and Load, presented by Gun Owners of America. Bill, thanks for taking some time to be with us tonight. Um, I, I guess only the distraction of other things going on in Washington, D.C. Um, has temporarily the, the delayed the parade of, uh, once again, renewed demands to... Uh, Uh, truncate the second amendment rights
2: yeah
3: yeah right now they've got bigger fish to fry uh it's really you know in the united states uh since sandy hook uh there's been five studies and surveys taken uh two of them actually three of them are quite notable because one was harvard one was the cdc and one that was the justice department and what the CDC found out is uh, John Lott's numbers and Gary Kleck's numbers and all of all the numbers that we hear about two and a half million, three million gun uses per year in defense are true. And that law abiding gun owners are very good people. They don't break the law. They they, they don't snap because they're carrying the evil gun. Uh, police. Uh, the, we had the police one survey where they did 15,000 police officers across the country. And. Uh, the lowest percentage of police that we're talking about, they preferred having Americans armed with guns, was in the 80 percentile. Uh, they don't believe more gun control is going to stop crime or do anything. Uh, then, of course, we had uh, the Pew Research Center and uh, I think I've named them all now. Crime is down, 49 percent. Gun violence, violent crime across the board is down. Half of what it was twenty years ago—it's it, a non-problem—and but that's not why they're pursuing gun control. So that's why they continue to pursue gun control. It has nothing to do with personal safety or uh, preventing crime because gun control doesn't prevent crime; it it uh, motivates crime. Well,
1: and you know the the absolute irony in almost without failure every one of these cases from the White House—I'm sorry—from the uh, wire story that I'm reading right here. Um, that suggests that the uh, potential woman in this uh, event there on Capitol Hill today, 34-year-old Miriam Carey, um, a dental hygienist from Connecticut who, quote, was described by sources as having a history of mental illness, close quote. Certainly in the case of uh, the Naval Shipyard shooter, a history of mental illness. There seems to be a common thread in almost every one of these cases. As eager as Congress is to try to move in and outlaw guns, how come Nobody's attempting to try and outlaw mental illness.
3: Well, that's because they would have to treat it differently. Um, uh, Dr. Keith Ablo is a psychiatrist that writes for Fox News, and he he was talking about Aaron Alexis, and Aaron Alexis could have been redeemed. Most of these people could be redeemed, but what happens is they go to a they go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and they get some over the counter well, over oral medication like Paxil or Ritalin. Or Zoloft or one of those psychotropic compounds. And that really doesn't address their issue. The ones that are deeply, I mean, Aaron Alexis, he did everything but uh, write out a letter, big block letter. Somebody needs to help me. He went to the police. He went to the VA. He had shoot He had two shooting incidents prior to uh, getting cleared to work at the naval shipyard. Um, and And still nobody did anything.
1: He's and I, and ironically, nobody looking right at any of the psychiatrists involved in this and saying, gee, we need to do an investigation into potential malpractice here because of the failure of the mental health professionals to aggressively respond or react to the obvious cry for help.
3: Uh, you know, I don't know if the, these guys fall under the, uh, the heading of medical misadventure, but um, if you want to go after the two biggest killers in the United States, or two? And a, I think the average is two and a half million people die. Unnaturally per year, and the biggest killers are alcohol and tobacco, and then medical misadventure, which kills about two hundred thousand people a year. And I don't know if these, these poor people that uh, fall to the cracks of the mental health system could be listed under medical misadventure, but they uh, they certainly need to. They need to take a very serious look at. Uh, the way they're treating these people. One of the are
1: states that, that ironically has um, come across fairly unscathed in terms of this kind of widespread bloodshed in uh, in recent years and yet has taken some of the hardest line against gun control is uh, the state of California. Um, yeah. There is now an attempt to try, and, and and I guess at the end of the day you'll have to help us understand this, Bill, uh, it, it seems as if it's now gotten down to an attempt to try and outlaw hunting
3: rifles. Well, what they want to do is they want to outlaw all semi-automatic rifles that have a detachable box magazine, which abandons all pretense beyond the assault weapon ban. Now, you've got to understand, first of all, assault weapon, the term assault weapon is a term that was coined by the uh, Violence Policy Center, which is a rabid anti-gun group. And they turned that back in 1988 as, as a way to uh, cause an emotional reaction to the description, assault weapon. Uh, not a target pistol, not a sporting rifle. Uh, the, the same rifles, by the way, are referred to by the Department of Homeland Security as personal defense weapons. But um, in the hands of, of a civilian, it becomes a, a, an assault weapon. And uh, now they've abandoned all pretense, and they're going just about everything that launches a bullet.
1: Well, the Remington that was used in the naval shipyard shootings, uh, what I understand to be a simple pump action shotgun, does that suddenly come under the category of an assault weapon?
3: Uh, well, they <laughs> one state had a buyback not too since the D.C. shooting, and uh, one of the buybacks that somebody bought uh, turned in a pump shotgun with an extendable stock, and that was the, that they uh, claimed they had collected an assault shotgun. Um, one, one characteristic that, uh, all weapons and, you know, shotguns arguably uh, are in Aurora. James Holmes killed 12 people. The first weapon he turned on the moviegoers was a Remington 870 shotgun. And, uh, my theory is probably killed eight people with the shotgun before he went to the center fire rifle. Because a shotgun approach is devastating. It, it is much more dangerous, uh, at 50 yards a shotgun with the right kind of ammo can take out a car what this is is, is simply this with, with uh, the so-called assault weapons the military lookalikes that have the same uh, semi-automatic capability as a true assault rifle does when it's in semi-automatic if they ban those first of all it's not going to have any impact on crime because more people get killed with hands and feet every year than they do with any sort of long rifle they know that. So they ban those or they, they heavily restrict those. And that has no impact on crime and crime continues on. So then they come back. And I think what you've got in California, you have this happening now. They come back when that first go round, that first restrictive go around doesn't work. And they come back and say, well, we didn't ban enough. And they keep on banning and banning until one day you've got a single shot rifle that, uh, you know, and, and still, you know, that weapon is lethal. I, they, they, what what Senator Leland Yee and a lot of the politicians in California want is a fairy tale land. It's a land that does not exist. There is no gun free utopia. That genie is out of the bottle. The criminals are not going to pay attention to it.
1: Well, and we know clearly from the battles over these kinds of issues in times past. The last time we had um, California Senator Diane Feinstein uh, jump on this bandwagon with both feet and insisting that we needed to uh, permanently ban assault weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how terrible they were, and that people should not be carrying guns. And then we find out, oops, she's got a concealed weapons permit. I don't have a problem with her as a senator carrying, but when there is sort of the elitist attitude that certain people get to have guns and others don't, you know, it comes down to one basic thing, that as we see this continued push, it's not addressing the real problem here, number one. And to number two, you're going to wind up with two groups of people having weapons. Uh, the police force, which is heading more toward a maritalistic style um you know, almost paramilitary troopers, any more than police these days with the way they're being armed, and the criminals. And meanwhile, the law-abiding citizens will simply get caught in the middle, no access to weapons whatsoever, which is kind of seemingly where things are headed if they get their way. Check out LockAndLoadRadio.com. That's LockAndLoadRadio.com, a part of Gun Owners of America. And there is Bill Frady on this edition of Lifeline